Welcome to the Natural Selection Presents Cycles. Welcome back listeners to a brand new episode of the Natural Selection Presents. This week we are presenting cycles. Um, so we were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Naomi. Hello. We have Nick. Hello. And I am the other Nick. Hello. Naomi, do you want to tell the listeners who we are? Yes, so we are the Natural Selection. We're a group of taxonomists and we want to bring our passion and excitement for nature into the wild. Each podcast, we meet up and we discuss the natural world. In the first part, we talk about news and research that's happened in the last couple of weeks. And in the second part, we choose a different theme and we reflect on how that impacts plants and animals around the world. This week's theme is cycles. Cool. Thanks, Nose. It's been a cold old week where I am, but have you guys managed to uh, find any interesting animals or plants on your wanderings? I haven't found any good wildlife, Nick, but I was out yesterday taking a walk just around sunset and I was looking at some clouds up in the sky and I suddenly, tiny, tiniest sliver of the crescent moon, just above the sun as it was setting, was like just glistening there in the sky. It was really beautiful. And apt for our episode of Cycles, obviously. Mm, yes. So I'm glad you were drawn to the moon. What about you, Gnomes? You know, I can't really think of any interactions I've had, it's kind of similar to, to last week where I spotted a lot of blossoms and things on my walk and also got rained on. Very spring-like this week, but yeah, no no animal interactions really. I've uh, only really heard some, but it's been quite joyous, that idea of spring, because the sparrows have become more vocal and there's a large bush near my house. I've honestly never seen so many sparrows in one place as Berlin, they are everywhere. And they all seem to live in this bush. So if on a quiet time in the morning when the traffic and the road works and the building quiets down, you can just hear them tweeting away in that bush uh, as loud as they can. And it's like a, an entire cacophony of sparrows. It's quite lovely. As exciting as that is, we should probably get on with the news because there's been some amazing research done uh, recently. And Naomi, I, I believe you found something important, but not nice. Yeah, so my news is, yeah, it's probably not too great but it is good that this research is being done so maybe that they can try and help these animals and so basically my piece of research was published in polar biology so it's led by a researcher from the university of arkansas working with an international group of scientists so there were scientists from from russia france and norway as well involved and the paper was looking at the potential of dental evidence as a proxy for food and diet choices in the Arctic fox, which is Volps lagopus. They were comparing the condition of their teeth across varying climate conditions and across time and space. So they were looking at the northern peninsula versus the southern peninsula. And they were also looking at times when they knew that there was a lot of their favoured prey was abundant and when their prey was less abundant. So the study looked at three different trapping times in 1981, 1983 and 2007. So in 1981 and 2007, rodents were quite rare in these areas, which is their preferred food. And in 1983, it was a rodent peak year. And what they found was that 
in the southern areas that the foxes had had less wear on their teeth um, and better teeth than in the northern areas um, and this was particularly evident during the lack of rodent ears in the rodent ears it was less obvious but basically what they were finding is that the animals in the northern area when they run out of their preferred prey the prey that they go for is carcasses of reindeer and this involves eating a lot more bone and this bone is a lot more hard wearing on their teeth so there's a lot more teeth breakages uh, decay and micro micro wear than there would be in the southern species where in the southern species when the rodents that they usually go for is an abundant they can switch to other kinds of animals like ptarmigans which are a bird in the grouse family and hares so they didn't go into details of how this specifically affects the arctic foxes but it does show that this is evident and it's part of a wider research that they're doing across multiple years in the Yamal Peninsula and they're looking at lots of different things as well so it's interesting that they're they're trying to work out how climate change will affect these animal diets in the future and this is kind of one aspect of it. I suppose what does that mean for animals in the future? So they, they didn't go into details in that whether it will have a negative effect but I imagine that it isn't going to be great, particularly if this boundary between the north and south, if, if with climate change, it means that the climate becomes more like the the less good area, more like the northern area than the southern area, then the foxes will face periods with their less good prey. But they didn't go into details of exactly how, how this affects the animals. This is more just that this is occurring. Mm. But yeah, losing teeth is probably not great, though. No, I, no. I hate it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but if you were sad about it, perhaps you wouldn't be crying alone this week, would you, Nick? Oh, no, I wouldn't. That's because a team of researchers led by Hans Clever at a Dutch university have been culturing cells in Petri dishes into collections of cells called organoids which sounds like something out of Blade Runner, but is actually the term for three-dimensional collections of cells designed to recreate in miniature different versions of organs outside of a body, uh, completely artificially constructed. And the organ that, they're, that they've successfully built in these Petri dishes are tear ducts. They've been trying to figure out how the tear duct works and if they can produce artificial tears in the lab. And it turns out they can. And at first, the first iterations, it took up to a day to get the cells to produce tears. But now it takes about only a half hour. So they're getting more effective with their cruel tear producing strategies. Uh, no, the cells aren't harmed during the making of this. But the reason they're doing this research is not because it's cool, uh, which it is, but because it's a good way of studying tear ducts outside of the eye, but still functioning. So tear ducts, they're sort of, they're really very difficult to biopsy. They're difficult to extract without damaging the structures. So this is a really good way of sort of seeing how the cells that make up the organ can sort of, you can model them and see how things, how to keep tear production happening smoothly and and fluidly in these organoids, and then hopefully uh, better understand the lacrimal gland itself in the eye. There were a lot of little details in this research that I was reading, though, that sort of struck me as uh, science fiction, not just the fact that they're called organoids and the fact that they're making functioning tear ducts in cells, but the fact that in order to test these cells, something that something that happens that's interesting with these cells is that they don't have ducts built in. These tear glands that produce tears 
in the in the cell culture swell up, whereas in our eyes they have ducts that act as a transport for the tears to sort of be produced on a surface. They can they can make d- droplets from a duct, but when they don't have the duct, they just the cells swell and swell. And they what the, how they tested to see if there's a way of producing ducts was by transplanting the organoids into mice. And the research I was reading didn't say what part of the mice. I don't think that it was the mice's eyes. That's just for our own speculation. And once in the mice, the cells matured fully and developed duct-like structures that then produced teardrops. So this sort of like ratchets up the science fiction level a little bit, but then it keeps going. They're not just interested in reproducing tear ducts and tear glands, but they've created a whole range of organoids, including miniature livers, cervical cancers, to study that in, in the Petri dish, and snake venom glands. And finally, the very last thing is they've teamed up with a Dutch TV show host whose name is Freak Vonk to study <laughs> structures resembling the tear glands in crocodiles. So they're hoping to make uh, actual crocodile tears, if you will. I love that that science sounds cool. My science has come out of perhaps one of the most boring parts of doing our job. Have you guys ever had to digitise anything? Oh, God, yes. No. I'm trying to think, did I? <laughs> did I just repress doing that? No. <laughs> um, so digitising can be quite a tedious process if you're working in a museum or some such place. But the news I have has come from a digitisation project. This was published in the Royal Society. It was adaptation of sperm whales to open boat whalers. And what they're suggesting is that there was rapid social learning on a large scale. And what they found is so they were digitising the diaries of Victorian era um, whalers in the North Pacific. What they found is, as time went on, the success of their harpooning fell by 58%. Now, this is quite staggering. What, what could this possibly mean? Well, what this meant was that Interestingly, the North Pacific was actually a new area for whaling. The whales had not encountered whaling or adapted to the presence of whalers before these diaries were kept. And this drop off in success was not seen around the world where uh, whales had already existed with whalers and perhaps adapted to these problems. But it appeared when harpoons were a new thing, sperm whales didn't know how to react and were slaughtered quite easily. And part of the reason for this is, do you know the sp- uh, sperm whale's only real predator that they worry about? Is it a tiny thing? It's pretty big. It's not a whale, but it's badly named. Badly named? It always kills everything in the ocean when you are. When, when it's something like something unexpected dying in the sea, it's always this animal. Is it it's a not jellyfish a of some kind? No, it's a killer whale. Oh, oh, killer, killer whale. whale. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that they... Whoa, that's interesting. Okay, whoa. So, they can prey on young sperm whales. And how sperm whales will tend to react to this is their only predator, um, evolutionary, is they will form a circle around the vulnerable ones with their tails outwards and be able to use that powerful tail to flap up and down and cause damage to killer whales. And for, for an orca, this would be enough to be like, all right, let's clear off. These are massive animals. We're not going to get through here. But if you're a whaler with a harpoon, that essentially they've made a bullseye and they were very, very easy to slaughter. But what they found is over a period of years that the sperm whales adapted and they adapted so quickly, it suggested that there was social learning, that they were somehow able to communicate these new techniques on escaping harpoons to each other, to whales that had never encountered the harpoons. 
Which, yeah, is an amazing thought that, yeah, they were learning together and sharing their learning. A little insight into quite a depressing part of our history, but uh, another reason to sort of be in awe of Wales. Wow, that is like so on point topical right now, Nick. I've been reading Moby Dick slowly over the course of literally over a year, uh, but I've just got back into it and there's a lot of natural history in it. It's like almost more natural history text than it is novel. So I'm learning a lot about Wales, but from the point of view of someone writing in the 1850s. And this was, I guess, not common knowledge at the time because nothing, he would definitely, Melville would have definitely mentioned something about communicating Wales um, that were suspected at the time broadly. That's really cool. I think that does bring us to the end of the news, but please join us after this short break where we have to talk about our topic, cycles. Welcome back, listeners. We are here to talk about cycles because this is our year episode. It's our 52nd one. So we've made it once around the sun in podcast form. But there's all sorts of amazing different cycles you can find in nature. And here's something I wasn't expecting to read when Nick showed me what he'd been researching. It was a body part I wasn't expecting to think about. So thanks for the intro, Nick. And I'm super excited to talk about the nose today. But I first want to get started by introducing a little bit about cycles, biological rhythms. And I know that uh, we're going to talk in a bit about the most well-known or or the thing you think about first when you think about rhythms, the circadian rhythm. So I won't talk about that. But outside of the circadian rhythm, there are a few other kinds of rhythms that I think are pretty interesting and important to sort of start our conversation here about cycles. Everything sort of focuses on natural phenomena. Everything's rooted in the natural phenomena. And the day is a really good marker for different cycle points. The circadian rhythm is a good marker for the day. But I said we won't talk about that, so let's move beyond the day. Let's move into infradian rhythms, which are it come from the word infra and dia for day. So they're cycles that are longer than a day. And these can include things like migration cycles, reproduction cycles in many animals and plants, the human menstrual cycle, and things like molting and fur growth. But today I want to talk about something called ultradian rhythms or from ultra and dia, which are cycles that are shorter than 24 hours, like the REM cycle or uh, the different oscillations of genes that are expressed during certain hours of the day more than others. But the one I want to talk about is the nasal cycle, which is approximately two to four hours, depending on who you're looking at. And it's pretty well studied in humans, but not well studied in other animals at all. So I'll make a brief note of the other animals first. It's known that many other mammals, like rats, rabbits, domestic pigs, cats, and dogs, all also have these sort of nasal ultradian cycles. But if you look at that list again, rats, rabbits, pigs, cats, and dogs, they're all things that we have close to us and know pretty well because we spend time with it in person or in the lab. Nothing really is known about nasal cycles outside of mammals. No work has been done in it. Doesn't, I'm not sure why. I'm interested. Note to scientists. I want to know more. So what is the nasal cycle? Have you ever sat there, you know, bored on a Friday night and noticed that all of your air was coming in and out of one nostril? You're not. Yes, but... I, yeah, I'm yes, often I ha- bored on a Friday night. So yes. <laughs> Great. Yes, Good. Yeah. I'm or so when glad. you wake up and you... That, that switching that happens is not just a random chance thing. It's a cycle, and it does it pretty regularly. The tissue inside of your nasal turbinate bones that um, is around the bones, and 
It's coated in a type of tissue called erectile tissue, but it inflates and deflates with blood based on autonomous nervous system impulses. At one point in the cycle, the left side of your nasals will inflate with the, it will congest with the erectile tissue filling with blood, and it will stop the air coming in and out of that nostril. And during that time, the cilia that keep the mucus and the particles and things moving in your nose stop moving. And that's to make sure that one part of your nose is always moist, while the other half does most of the breathing in and out. It keeps that the congested part of your nose moist. The nose serves three functions, humidification, filtering, and warming air that comes in into the lungs. So by shifting back and forth, the nose then can keep each half of the nose sort of in working in good working condition. And there's a lot of theories about this. So it hasn't been totally figured out why this happens, but some of the theories get, they're pretty reasonable, uh, saying that, that they can change based on age, body posture, some that they change based on, uh, and this, this is a term I'd never heard before, lateral decubitis, which in parentheses, the research I was looking at says, lying down on your side. So next time you're in lateral decubitis, remember that one. Some other researchers were postulating that maybe this keeps people turning during the night. Uh, if it's more comfortable to breathe with the open one on top, then you shift over when the, night, the cycle switches. It keeps you from developing bed sores or uh, always resting on one side and sort of having the gravity pull you down in that direction. I don't know which is true. Uh, research is still out on question, but who knew that nasal cycles uh, really presented an underlying biological phenomenon and that when you feel that you know late friday night feeling of wow my nose is only working on one side it's not just you i will never forgive you for ending on who knew rather than who knows <laughs> <laughs> i actually had a well i won't say an argument but i did have a disagreement about someone saying i was like oh you know you really only breathe through one nostril at a time and then they were like no i breathe through two nostrils but they might not be right I'm glad you brought that up because it's a cycle. That means that yeah. there's a peak and a trough of the cycle. At one point in the cycle, you will be only breathing out of one or then then later the other nostril. Yeah. But there's a shift. And during the shift phase, it switches. So you'd have a period of two. Ah, okay. Cool. Good, good to know. That's really cool. Thanks, Nick. And now, Naomi, you might have plucked for that famous rhythm that Nick had already mentioned. Yes, so I decided to go for maybe one of the classic things you might think of when you think about cycles. I want to talk about the circadian rhythm. And I know it's something we have talked about before on this podcast, but in particular, I want to talk about one experiment that they did. So it's a very influential biorhythm, and it's the endless cycle of day and night. So in the 1960s, they did this renowned experiment to try and pinpoint how this biological clock worked because up until this point it was some people were aware that it was something that animals and plants had had this biological clock that was influenced by light but people kind of thought humans were maybe above that we kind of assumed that humans were different that they actually lived free of this pull of nature and that their behavior was maybe a little bit more socially driven so what they did was they had these this sealed bunker and they had participants who went in for a number of weeks and it was uh, completely dark. It was, it was an underground bunker, except for they had like artificial light. And they wanted to see how people would react to this. So they had people in there for several weeks. This ran from the 60s up to the 80s. 
And there was some some interesting things they found from this. So people were kind of nervous when they first went in, but they had it set up that you would have all the amenities you would need for your normal everyday life. So people actually kind of didn't want to leave once once the experiment was over. So they had they had sensors. Well, except for for this one thing, which sounds a little bit invasive. They had sensors that measured movements, and each person was able to switch on and off their own light. One thing they did have was they had rectal thermometers, which I think the people had constantly in. That's the perfect thing for a circadian rhythm is putting a thermometer where the sun doesn't shine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then they asked people to press a buzzer every hour and then one minute after that. So they wanted to see how accurate they were at, at perspective of time from both longer periods and short intervals. So they were able to live their lives as their biological clocks saw fit. So when they went to bed, when they were tired, they went to bed and they woke up when they felt like it. So again, it kind of broke. It, it worked out as it would for normal life. They spent two thirds of their day awake and one third of their day sleeping. So then they would end the task as follows. So they would go in, they would leave a note uh, that they were stopping by for a visit and the subjects didn't know why they were visiting. And when they'd come in, they'd ask them what day of the week it was and what time it was. And then they would say the experiment was over. And they actually, apparently, they always got it wrong. They never knew what day, day of the week it was. and They never knew what time it was. But the results did match their hypothesis. They did think that people would follow this sort of natural circadian rhythm. However, so the, the experimenters at the time, they said that the clock didn't quite run to a 24 hour, that it ran to a 25 Actually, this is kind of a result of an ex a slight experimental error because they were using artificial light. Artificial light can be known to interrupt the circadian rhythm a little bit. So newer, more modern experiments have confirmed that actually it is most people have a 24 hour schedule instead of this 25. But even still, it was still a pretty influential experiment because they were able to show that actually humans still have this without these outside light and like clocks, they were able to still kind of have this rhythm. They did have an example of a really extreme case where someone, their circadian rhythm settled around 50 hours and they found that, they found that one of the weird things about it was this person, they thought they, they spent five weeks in the bunker and they only thought they'd been in there for three. Their main thing was that they basically lost two weeks of their life and they were Kind of a bit confused about it at the end but yeah so this was an interesting experiment they have done different experiments since then i think they've done a lot more modern ones which have shown kind of maybe a little bit more accurately these things when they've worked out these experimental biases with lights uh, artificial lights and stuff like that but i thought this was a cool experiment that i would bring up to continue us in our episode about cycles i have to say it um one of my pet peeves, and this has made me feel a bit more forgiving about people who do this, is I never know what the date is. So I will often ask someone with a phone or sitting at a computer, I'll say, what's the date? And they will immediately respond, Wednesday or Friday. And it drives me mad because I think, do you think I got here not knowing that it was Wednesday? Like, I feel like I'm in enough grasp of my life to know what day of the week it is. But this would suggest that perhaps human beings struggle more than I imagine. So I shouldn't feel so hoity-toity. <laughs> well, particularly with lockdown, I barely ever know what day of the week it is anymore. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and we only know that we're recording today on the 17th because it's <laughs> Ireland Day. 
I'm dressed head to toe in green. It's true. She's very festive. <laughs> um, well, for that occasion, I picked perhaps the least festive topic that anyone has ever chosen. I decided to talk about guinea worms. Now, are you two familiar with guinea worms? No, but it instills me with a slight sense of unease. Yes, I am familiar. Well, yes, familiar in that I know what they are, not in that I've experienced it, thankfully. Yeah, so guinea worms have been a pest for humans. Basically, they're a parasite for pretty much all of our existence, as far as I can understand. But there's a great story behind them. It probably starts with their life cycle. So these are nematodes, and they're parasitic nematodes, and they parasitize humans. Now, the females especially are the ones that cause the problems. They can grow up to about 80 centimeters in length inside our bodies. But how the life cycle starts is, it's a cycle, so it's difficult to to think of a beginning point, but imagine the larvae are released into water. So the larvae are released into water, and then they are eaten by this copepod, uh, this type of small crustacean. And in there, it's able to grow. Now, when people drink from this water, they then uh, swallow the copepods. And when the copepods die, the larvae can penetrate the host stomach and the intestinal wall. And then they can reproduce sexually into the subcutaneous t- and, and move into subcutaneous tissues where they mature. And this is where the males uh, die and the females will grow to that enormous length of about 80 centimeters. Now, the reason you might have heard of them is how they exit the human body. Uh, They tend to prefer lower limbs, but it has been known also in things like hands or even the palms of the hand and even the scrotum as as an exit point. But generally the legs, they will grow and grow and grow until they start to leave the body. And this can take a long time. Uh, But the wound they create will become very, very, very hot uh, and cause fevers and illness and it will slowly go out. Now, with wounds like that, if it feels hot, the natural response is perhaps to put it in water where it will cool down. Uh, And this is where it wants to be, as where it's in the water, it will again release the larva into the water where the cycle can begin again. Now, the reason you might recognize this worm is it can be removed. You can't just pull it, the worm will break, and this is no help to anyone. So what they do is they uh, wrap the end around a pencil and then they slowly turn the pencil or, or a stick of wood. Now, the reason I mention this is because if I asked you, what is the symbol for medicine? The Aesculapolis' staff. The staff with the snake around it. The staff with the snake around it. Well, what if I told you there's a theory that that's not a snake? I would, I'm going to mute my mic and go throw up. <laughs> so there's a theory that this is such an old procedure that this staff isn't uh, doesn't have a snake wrapped around it but this is in fact a stick with a guinea worm wrapped around it and this is a symbol for medicine because this is a way to treat people now the reason that i bring this up and why it's somewhat of a success story is because there's efforts to eradicate the guinea worm from earth and they're surprisingly successful and all they need to do is use a filter so they can give shores with a bit of gauze in them that will stop the um, stop the uh, stop the copepods or the crustaceans getting into your body. And then the guinea worm, if it can't reproduce in humans, then it can't reproduce. And with these efforts, the numbers are staggering. So in 1986, there were 3.5 million cases in 21 different countries around the world. Do you know how many cases there were in 2018? Like a couple of hundred? 28. Uh, cool. Wow. 
So yeah, so mm-hmm. they could, they've all pretty much got names now. You could name everyone who got it in 2018 in only three different countries. And it's been hovering about this for the last few years. So there's real hope that this thing could get eradicated. And part of the reason for that is, yeah, that it's a human uh, transmitted disease. It grows in humans. So if we can eliminate this cycle or step in this cycle, then we can eliminate this disease. But the bad news is, is they recently discovered that perhaps it might be able to grow in other mammals like dogs. So this means if there's an animal reservoir, that it's much, much harder to get rid of. Things like polio have an animal reservoir as well. So they're harder to, to eradicate. And there's even some evidence they might be found in frogs, which is an absolute nightmare because, yeah, they, they live in water and uh, the water sources of millions of people around the world. But yeah, I thought it was an interesting point of ways that human beings look at cycles of animals. This was a really interesting one because it's something we're trying to stop. Nick, I'm surprised you didn't go for the... Um the scientific name there the guinea worm Jucunculus medinensis yeah it rolls off the tongue yeah i like a a jucunculus (laughs) it sounds like a drunk person trying to say drunk (laughs) so yeah here's this very human-centric episode this time and i don't feel we're entirely stepping away from that on our next topic no so i'm also going to be a little bit human-centric in my topic in my next topic here So I wanted to talk a little bit about the menstrual cycle, something that popped into my head when we mentioned our theme of cycles. So actually, most mammals have an estrus cycle. Funnily enough, I'm not going to talk much about the estrus cycle, but I did want to talk a little bit about the etymology because it's really odd. Uh, So the estrus cycle, which is derived from Latin estrus, which means frenzy, which is originally from the Greek gadfly. So if you're wondering oh, where the leap between frenzy and gadfly came, well, apparently it specifically refers to the gadfly in ancient Greek mythology that Hera sent to torment Lo, and Lo was one of Zeus's mistresses. So I think it's used kind of to indicate frenzy or madness in this context as well. And so, yeah, most mammal species advertise fertility to males with behavioral cues pheromones or, or both and this is the estrus cycle but some female mammals have a menstrual cycle there's only 10 primate species four bat species the elephant shrew and the spiny mouse that have the menstrual cycle and humans are included in this and um, so cycles are the same as in humans in these other animals apart from the length the lack of the immediate relationship between some of these groups does suggest that there's like several different evolutionary events that cause us to arise. But there's been a lot of people wondering why, if it doesn't happen in most mammals, why does menstruation happen at all? So I found a really interesting article from BBC, and it was looking at a a research paper, and it was looking at why some of the leading theories to why menstruation occurs. So in the 1900s, this was really, this idea was really deeply entrenched by the taboos against menstruating women. So in the 1920s, um, Belichick, a popular physician, conceived the term menotoxin. So he basically had an experiment where menstruating women and non-menstruating women handle flowers. And he somehow concluded that menstruating women excreted toxic substances from their skin that caused the flowers to wilt. So (laughs) I tried to find the exact paper to see what he actually did. But but somehow, yeah, I w- there was a lot of anecdotal evidence I was finding about it, but it didn't sound very scientific anyway when I was reading about it and how he got to this conclusion. So a lot of other people 
corroborated this conclusion that there was somehow women were toxic. Pliny the Elder from Roman times said, contact with it, and he's talking about menstrual blood, contact with it turns new wine sour, crops touched by it become barren, grass die, seeds and gardens are dried up, the fruits of trees fall off, the edge of steel and the gleam of ivory are dulled, hives of bees die, even bronze and iron at once seized by rust and a horrible smell fills the air. To taste it drives dogs mad and infects their bites with an incurable poison. So perhaps in the Roman, you know, you, you may forgive his lack of understanding of things, but even in the 1920s, this sort of idea that it was dirty or toxic was, was very much at the forefront. So later on in the 90s, a scientist thought that they turned it on its head a little bit and thought that actually maybe this was to do with the idea that sperm and, and like that's they're trying to get rid of disease from the male so that's why they get rid of their womb but this again isn't really supported with evidence and um, there's a couple of other ideas that have been come into place but the most supported one is that it's actually sort of a byproduct of the way the wombs are developed so in the animals that have menstruation basically they also have this thing called they also have this thing called spontaneous decidualization and that's basically to do with with the layers of the uterus form um and usually this is triggered by the fetus but in these animals it happens spontaneously it's controlled by the mother so they think that this is sort of an evolutionary menstruation is sort of an evolutionary trade-off that this way of creating the womb and it's sort of like a process of stopping the fetus taking too many nutrients of stopping the fetus getting too much into the womb it's making these special layers before the fetus Im- implants the fetus is created and so this is why they think that menstruation happens because in these animals are able to control the creation of these layers themselves and um, so i thought i would talk about that for this week's topic and you did yes cool yeah i suppose you never think of it being in other animals but why would we notice in our general day-to-day lives. They, they were quite a, a wide variety of animals as well. I remember as a young child being sort of confused by the story from the Bible that menstruation and painful childbirth was like God's punishment for Eve for betraying, uh, for b- betraying him and eating the apple. And then at the same time, we had got a dog and she hadn't been spayed yet. Um, and she had her first period and like dogs have periods pretty you know it's like they're bleeding everywhere um and so I sort of was like well did the dog what did the dog do to God like what's the deal there that's like very six-year-old logic (laughs) it's interesting actually you bring it up as well because dogs technically they don't menstruate but they do bleed as part of their cycle but they still have an estrus cycle whoa that's more complex yeah they don't they don't, uh, yeah, they don't, it's not the lining of the womb that's coming off, but it's, it's a different phase of the cycle that they're, that they're bleeding in. Um, I think they have like diestrus, so they go into heat twice, twice a year. I think it varies in different breeds, though. I think it can be like one to three for different breeds. I don't know why you're surprised about that at all, Nick, because if there's one animal that would eat food that it's expressly forbidden from doing so, it is pet dogs. <laughs> It's true. It's true. <laughs> so, guys, we've talked about humans a lot, but as I am wont to do, I quite like talking about insects. Specifically this week, bugs. And 
Yeah, everyone calls insects bugs, but these ones actually are bugs. They're, they're, they're from the uh, Hemiptera family. And what I want to talk about is cicadas. Now, Nick, I imagine that you're very familiar with cicadas. I'm really <laughs> glad you say it that way, Nick, because I have no idea what a cicada is, but I love cicadas. Oh. <laughs> Do we, am I pronouncing it wrong? No, you say it totally right for a Brit. For a Brit. Okay, cool. I was I like, I'm sure we say cicadas, but if I'm, okay, cool. No, you're absolutely, uh, but no. Yeah, I love do. that tone. You were like, you say it right for a Brit. <laughs> <laughs> A year in, and I'm still petty. Um, so, yeah, Nick, uh, they every summer where I grow up, um, they just they're the sound of summer. But then, then the the morning doves um, makes me feel like summer at home. But Naomi, I imagine less familiar. Yes, less familiar. I have, I do know a little bit about them because I've looked them up because I find them really interesting. But I've never heard them in their natural habitat. No. So in the long history of badly naming things, in North America, they often get called locust or have a colloquial name with locust in the title. But they're explicitly not locust, which are an entirely different family of uh, insects, which are related to grasshoppers. These are cicadas or, as Nick calls them, cicadas. Two can play this game, sir. As you will, as you will. <laughs> but what I really wanted to focus on on our episode about cycles is periodical cicadas and the reason that they are in the these cycles is part of their name periodical cicadas now what makes them periodical and these are cicadas that only come out on the ground on certain years and what's really interesting about them is the years they choose to come out in so some of them choose to come out every 17 years it's a long time others come out the ground every 13 years Again, still a very long time. So why these numbers? There's two reasons that these numbers have sort of evolved as, um, as gaps on which these cicadas come out of the ground. Now, the first one is to do with predators. And it's part of the reason that they first got noticed is because of predators. And what they noticed is, I believe it was lynx in North America. They suddenly noticed that there were certain years where they boomed in population. And this is really weird. Why are lynx is booming? And they realized it's because their prey, the hare, was booming in population as well. And so you get these things of well, what's causing these booms. And one of those booms is caused by cicadas because they come out of the ground and they can be eaten by predators. Now, predator cycles are of sort of when they grow and reproduce tend to be uh, about two to ten years. So what you want to do is you want to best avoid this cycle. So you want a number above 10. Uh, and the other thing you want that number to be is a prime number. And what are the first two prime numbers after 10? Well, one is 11 and we're going to ignore that. But after that, <laughs> is it 13 and 17? It is 13 and 17. And these prime numbers mean that they're less likely to interact when uh, the predators are reproducing and they, they're able to have a, um, they're able to react to this boom in a population. So uh, it means that they're less likely to face problems in the future if they spread these gaps out because they're unlikely to increase the population of their predators next time around. And this is really, really important. But you notice there's two groups, one of 13 and one of 17. This is the other reason they chose those years is because it means they're less likely to compete with each other. So I did the math 
And if they appear every 13 or 17 years, um, do you know how many years it would take for them to appear at the same time? Whatever 13 times 17 is. It's 221 years. So they won't compete with each other for a quarter of a millennium. Nice. Yeah. And this evolved millions of years ago. So there's been a lot of evolutionary pressure on these sort of periodical cicadas to be able to do this and to be able to avoid each other and to be able to avoid predators. And it's, uh, yeah, quite an interesting cycle that's have appeared in North America. What I really, really liked about this is there wasn't just one type that there was two. There wasn't just 17 year cicadas. There was 13. And yeah, they're, they're interacting with each other in that way. It's a little extra that both of those, 13 and 17, pick yeah. one. No, but I get it. The competition makes a lot of sense. Um, but there's multiple species within those two cycles, right? Or am I incorrect with that? That's right. I mean, there's seven species across those two cycles. Um, so, yeah, they, even though they're um, only two cycles, different cicadas picked those numbers, which sort of shows that those numbers are probably pretty, pretty important to them. But that does bring us to our last topic. From leaving humans, we're now just going to fully leave the animal kingdom. Yeah, we're headed straight into plant world now. Rare for us. I want to wrap up today by talking about uh, one of the incredible cycles of rhythms that happen in plants. And there are a few. I mean, we something that comes up a lot, and especially talking about these booms, uh, is synchronized flowering. That's a, a really interesting. But for another day, that's for another day. Today, I want to talk about photoperiodism and sort of it in some ways relates to what Naomi brought up last week with phototropism. But today, it's, this is um, infraradian rhythm. So this is longer than a day. And this is, uh, these happen on the scale of often years. Uh, a year is the usual cycle for these. And what it has to do with is the development of flowering or the, the flowering of the plant based on the ratio of light. There are three different groups of plants uh, that re respond to light in different ways. There are the long day plants, the short day plants, and the day neutral plants. So first I'll talk about the long day plants. And I guess we can dive into it by saying that really when you get down into the plant, into plant physiology, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense for us human animals. You know, we, we have, um, we learn a lot about physiology in school, but we don't learn a lot about plant physiology. And the more I read about it, the more I realize how little I know. So I'm going to do my best here to explain to you the molecule that is that acts as a photoreceptor protein in plants called phytochrome. What it does is it can change from one form to another based on the type of light that hits it. And when it's present in the cells in a certain concentration of one form, it causes growth and then thus flowering. And when it's present in the other form, it causes stasis or it doesn't instigate growth. So the light that changes this protein back and forth from these two forms is red light and infrared light. So red light is present in sunlight. And when sunlight shines on the leaf, this protein converts into its active form. But when infrared light shines on it in a higher proportion than red light, it turns it back from the active form into the inactive form. And that light is present in shade and it's present at night in higher proportion than red light. This sort of gives the plant an ability to respond, if you will, to different proportions of light or and or day and night. So when a plant gets many more hours of red light than infrared light, when it starts to get more and more 
longer days, these long day plants go into their flowering mode. So these are plants that flower late in spring, early in summer as the days get longer. That photochrome protein shifts into its active form as the days get longer, and then eventually it reaches a peak where then the plant begins to flower. Things that we are familiar with that are long day plants are oats, carnations, peas, barley, lettuce, and wheat. Short day plants, on the other hand, it happens the other way. They cannot flower if the nights are short or if pulses of artificial light in the lab or in cities shine on the plant for more than several minutes during the night. They require a continuous period of darkness before floral development begins. So this is not a response to the activation of phytochrome, but rather the deactivation of the phytochrome protein then begins the floral development, as far as I can understand. And please, any plant uh, physiologists out there who uh, send us a message, love to know more. So this happens after midsummer. This happens after June 21st in the Northern Hemisphere. And this is when nights grow longer. These are plants that bloom in late summer, early autumn. And some of these plants include cannabis, cotton, rice, and soybeans. So there's one final group, the day neutral plants. And in an episode about cycles, you might be thinking, well, if they're not short day plants and they're not long day plants, then what's the point? But these plants, maybe they don't respond to the days, but they respond to other cycles and other environmental stimuli. One such uh, stimulus is vernalization or a period of low temperature. So these are plants that can either be initiated to flower in the wintertime uh, or begin to flower in the springtime when it gets warm again. So day neutral plants also fall on different cycles, but they're not uh, governed by this phytochrome protein in the same way. Cool. Well, that does bring us to an end of another wonderful episode. Thank you so much, guys, for your amazing facts and thoughts about the natural world this week. Um, now, next week, we will be taking a short break, so you won't be able to hear us on Tuesday. But we will be back the week after to start anew on perhaps another yearly cycle for The Natural Selection Presents. But until then, I'm afraid it's uh, from all of us. Goodbye. 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 Sloan. I kind of would feel that, yeah, this uh, finishing Moby Dick has sort of become an obsession for you, something that you just can't quite can't quite do. Yeah, but, you um, could almost say I've become like a bit monomaniacal about it.